Hello, this is the EY Microsoft Tech Directions podcast, cybersecurity in a post-pandemic world. I'm your host, Susanna Streeter. As businesses adapted to widespread disruption during the pandemic, the scale and speed of the shift to new ways of working was immense. IT departments transitioned armies of workers from the office to home, supporting customer interaction virtually and keeping supply chains open through digital platforms. But the speed of change came with a heavy price. Many businesses did not sufficiently consider cybersecurity in the decision-making process. As a result, new vulnerabilities entered an already fast-moving environment and continue to threaten the business today. 81% of executives who took part in the EY Global Information Security Survey 2021 said that COVID-19 forced organizations to bypass security processes. So now as the dust settles, it's become evident that IT teams have an even bigger network to operate and protect, while also continuing on their digital transformation journey. So it's crucial that organizations act now to ensure that they have the C-suite level confidence in their ability to protect both mission critical systems and their customers' personal data. And that's what we're focusing on in this podcast. How do you foster a security by design mindset and provide the armor for the valuable new digital assets which will power our future? What are the best ways of reinforcing networks while still empowering employees and boosting productivity, creativity, and collaboration? Well, we have two esteemed thought leaders in the business to take us through the challenges and opportunities, but before I introduce them, please remember, Conversations during EY podcasts should not be relied on as accounting, tax, legal, investment, nor any other professional advice. Listeners must consult their own advisors. Joining me now from Massachusetts is Joram Borenstein, General Manager of Security Sales Strategy and GTM at Microsoft. Great to have you here. I know you're in demand, so thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And from Alexandria, Virginia, I'm delighted to welcome Chris Lovejoy, EY Global Consulting Cybersecurity Leader. Hi there, Chris. Thanks very much for interrupting your busy schedule because I know you must be working with organizations pretty intensely to have protect and grow their businesses right now. So it's great to have you here. Thank you so much. And yes, it is indeed a very busy time for us. So Yoram, I want to ask you first, let's take us to the start of the pandemic and the enormous challenges organizations were faced with in switching to digital in such a short amount of time. Is it understandable then that cybersecurity was lower down on the list of priorities when new systems were adopted? It's a great question to start off with. I think it is to some extent understandable. You know, the pandemic, the way it started at least, you know, a year and a half ago, approximately, depending on what part of the world one, one is in, you know, it was historic in every sense of the word. Very few people alive, uh, certainly probably very few people working, if any, had any experience with this kind of situation. I think it really challenged businesses at their at their most fundamental levels about you know, how do they continue operating? And so I think, unfortunately, I think it is to some extent understandable that some of the emphasis on on security and even some of the basic issues of, you know, cyber hygiene, et cetera, did at least initially sort of fall by the wayside. I think very quickly, though, that that, that did change, right? Businesses did fundamentally recognize that, you know, if they had people working remotely who perhaps had never worked uh, remotely before, they needed to think very differently about about their network security, their endpoint security, their identity and access management, et cetera. 
And in cases of businesses that did continue to operate, you know, physically in person, they also had to think very differently about, you know, issues of physical spacing and uh, devices, perhaps, you know, not being shared as much. And again, all of those, whether it was a work from home scenario, whether it's a hybrid scenario, or whether it was still a, you know, working in person scenario, um, there were, I think, uh, you know, quite a few implications from a cyber point of view. Absolutely. Chris, what, what, just what is the scale of the problem? Well, you know, I, I think just let's dial back before um, the COVID period. And, you know, I think w- w- the statistic that you pointed out about the 81 percent, you know, that is that is a large number and larger than we've ever seen before in you know, sort of the, the pools of organizations that have, uh, you know, sort of avoided the security conversation at the beginning of a digital transformation. But that said, you know, having been a practitioner in this field for, you know, going on almost 30 years now, I can say that you know, this is a very, very crisis or compliance-driven market, you know, by and large. And so historically, organizations, even prior to the pandemic, have tended to treat security as, you know, sort of a, that compliance function that came in after a new um, initiative was designed, prototyped, and perhaps even rolled out. And so I think, you know, what's happened within COVID is it's not necessarily new. But what it's done is it's exaggerated a trend that existed before. And I think, you know, one of the issues that is, um, you know, further exacerbating the situation we're in is the fact that during COVID, not only were these new technologies rolled out without, you know, we use it, you know, the example of, you know, if you were rolling out a car and you put it into the showroom and then figured out you had a you no know, seatbelts, you'd have a problem. And, you know, so think about the same thing within the security perspective. But not only, you know, did we roll out massive amounts of um, technology without the seatbelts built in, but we also cut back on our budgets from a security perspective, as well as cutting back on hiring. And so now what we find ourselves in is in a situation where there is a lot of um, risk that has been inherited by the the security organization. So a bigger attack surface that they need to protect. They are sort of trying to figure out from a budget perspective how to deal with this inherent risk as well as deal with the new um, strategic initiatives that the businesses are outlining today. And then moreover, they're engaging in kind of hand-to-hand combat in hiring the right people to help them in solving the problem. So tell me more about the concept of security by design. Why is it crucial that it underpins decision-making and that security isn't just an afterthought? What typically happens or what should happen is that, you know, a security organization should be working with the business. Let's say the business is undergoing a supply chain transformation. As they're thinking about that supply chain transformation, they should be helping the business to think about, okay, what does this mean? What are the systems that we're going to be bringing in? What are the kinds of people that are going to be interacting? What are the kinds of processes that are going to be executed? How does security play a part in this? How do we both, you know, protect our data and our systems, but also enable the right human beings to communicate with the other right human beings within this particular process? And so having that conversation up front and allowing for the CISO or the security team to have, you know, sort of business risk discussions, help the business understand what the risk is and select the right types of controls to implement is critically important. That's security by design. 
it's sort of peeking around the corner, understanding what is the need for the business and then helping them get there. So how do you then, Yoram, actually make sure that the groundwork is laid to ensure that security by design is built from the ground up? Because it's not as simple as just doing it, is it? I mean, there needs to be the right groundwork first. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's an excellent question. I think it is the question in most executives' minds, you know, to Chris's point a moment ago. I, I, I'd make a couple of comments. I, I'd say, uh, look, this world of hybrid work and digital transformation is obviously has now been with us for a year and a half. So it is still for many leaders, a relatively new concept. Uh, some of them were, of course, working on these types of projects, perhaps in a smaller capacity before the pandemic started, but but many, many were not from my sort of anecdotal experience. Um, and what we're seeing now, quite frankly, is that literally almost every single customer thinking about hybrid work is thinking about it from a security point of view, or is weaving security into that conversation. And, and speci- you know, more specifically, what they're asking about, asking for help for are things like, how do you create a seamless and a secure experience for every employee, regardless of whether that employee is never in the office, always in the office, or sometimes in the office, right? There shouldn't really be a distinction from their own experience just based on where they're physically located. Obviously, they're also thinking a lot about cost savings and consolidation, right? That plays an important role, of course, in, in most executives' decisions. They're also, quite frankly, looking at blending uh, what I would call the digital world with the physical world, right? And thinking a lot about physical factories and physical assets in the same way they're thinking about digital assets. And I know oftentimes those topics are treated uh, separately in, in most, you know, if you read sort of mainstream articles and things like that. But increasingly, I do think you're seeing leaders try to think about those sort of you know, blended together. And then and then last but not least is really like, how do you just fundamentally, you know, our customers, how do they think about modernizing their their whole security operation, right? Which can mean any number of processes, technologies, training, hiring. Um, and we're seeing also ch- in, in many cases, you know, reorganizations because simply the way an organization was structured before the pandemic may not be fully optimized for what the business needs today. Yeah. And you talk about cost cutting. Sometimes teams and businesses in general are being pulled in two directions, the need to make immediate costs. But then again, you've got to get this issue right in terms of reputation and ultimately the bottom line, don't you? For sure. Customers we talk to think a lot about these issues. Uh, you know, we we conducted a survey, Microsoft conducted a survey in August of 2020, so just over a year ago, looking at about 800 uh, business leaders across a number of different countries. And what you see, you know, time and again, is that, you know, the businesses are still in some cases being impacted by phishing scams. They're still trying to figure out what the ideal security budget they need is. Um, and, you know, hiring and retention of, of key talent, you know, remains remains a key, key issue. Those are some of the obvious themes that popped up, and it's fully aligned with some of these challenges that the businesses uh, were facing. You know, I want to flip the conversation on a little bit of its access, because I think that this issue on cost savings is actually an opportunity. Um, and so what do I mean by that? You know, I, I said before that the security industry is largely a compliance or crisis driven industry. So, you know, what's happened over the years and, you know, when you talk to a CISO, you know, what they'll tell you is because of the approach that we've taken, instead of thinking strategically about security, oftentimes the only thing the business allows us to do is to find the solution to the 
the problem that we face today. Meaning that if it is a, you know, we've got uh, the auditor coming in and saying, you've got a problem here with A, I'm going to buy the narrowest possible solution to A at the cheapest possible cost. And so what happens over time is that, you know, your closet gets full of technologies, it gets full of, you know, policies, et cetera. And because you're doing it for compliance reasons, you can never take any of that stuff out. And so over time, what's happened is, you know, organizations have become overloaded with almost too much stuff from a security controls perspective. So I think one of the opportunities we have today um, from a digital transformation perspective is A, to massively simplify the infrastructure that we have in place to protect our organizations and to mean overall security and resiliency. And so I think that the cost savings gives us this window of opportunity for us to go in and question kind of what we've got in the closet. And I think that the other thing that this allows us to do is actually fast track the pace of transformation, because I would argue that moving to a cloud infrastructure as an example, that actually will lead to a massive simplification and a rationalization of controls that not only will allow you to save cost, but will actually allow you to improve your security. And so one of the things for organizations that have a lot of legacy risk that are facing these sort of budget crisis, use it as an opportunity. Go back, clean out your closet, and use it as, a, as the rationale to run, not walk, but run to a transformation. Yeah, it's interesting, that analogy of cleaning out the closet, because you're, do you think it's even more crucial right now because regulatory fragmentation is piling on the pressure? Yeah, I think, I mean, I fundamentally agree with where Chris is going in her comments. I would say it's not uncommon to to encounter a customer with a few dozen different security and compliance products from multiple different vendors, right? And and watch them, to Chris's point, struggling with, with getting these products to work together, if that's even possible. And so when it comes to audits and regulatory, you know, pressures and realities, what, what we tend to find is customers tend to say, um, you know, to, again, to Chris's point, if I could build on that for a moment, they tend to say, well, I need to get this done just to pass the audit and just to get through the compliance hurdle that I'm facing right now. Um, and so compliance is, a, I would argue, a big consideration. I think it is growing. And I think the complexity in the regulatory environment, you know, as businesses launch new products and services to remain competitive and also enter new, you know, new new markets, physically new markets, right, and new jurisdictions is, is critical. And then the last thing I would say on this, if I may, Susanna, is um, privacy. Right. I mean, I think the world has gotten much more serious about privacy than I think it ever has been. There have always been parts of the globe that have been uh, you know, more serious than others. But I think what you're seeing now is fundamentally a fairly consistent growth worldwide in, in concerns, again, both at the business level and at the uh, individual consumer level on privacy. So, Chris, what challenges do you think fragmentation presents? I have to say, and this is probably worthy of a full day of conversation, but you know, this this issue of uh, com- compliance complexity is something that we're all dealing with today, but is going to get much worse. And I let me let me explain just for a minute why. So, you know, one of the wonderful outcomes of all of the sort of the backlash against globalization and the you know sort of populism is this onslaught of new regulations, cybersecurity and privacy regulations that are coming out in the individual nation states. 
If you look at the mature and emerging nation states, as defined by the um, ITU, what you'll find is about 80% of them have introduced or are planning to introduce new privacy and security regulations in the next 12 months. Now, what does that mean? It means a huge amount of fragmentation because each of these regulations is just a little bit different. And so if you think about it from a practitioner's perspective, um, not only do I have all of the cyber risk, but now I've got to wade through all of these very, very balkanized requirements that require me to think about how do I maintain data locally? How do I meet individual requirements vis-a-vis disclosure? How do I implement, you know, sort of different kinds of, you know, controls over encryption, et cetera, et cetera. So this problem on the, on the compliance side is going to um, increase the pain, I think, for the security organization. So, you know, where do you start? Where, how do you even begin to think about this? You know, one of the things that, you know, I always advise is that, again, let's go back to the business. You know, at the end of the day, this is all about business. It's about providing services to a customer, whether you're a government or a nonprofit or, you know, a for-profit enterprise, you are providing a service to somebody. And so the question is, you know, what is the risk associated with that service? What are the obligations that I may have, um, you know, vis-a-vis the location in which I'm providing those services? And so in answer to the question, where do you start? Yes, start at the beginning of understanding the business service. And I know that may seem really trite, but one of the problems that um, I'm seeing is that, you know, CISOs don't necessarily always understand the language of the business. The relationships between themselves and the business are not necessarily the healthiest. And so therefore, because the conversation isn't um, starting at the beginning and really understanding the way the business works, we're not necessarily able to identify the risk and then optimize the controls around that. So do you think then part of the long-term strategy should be giving security officers a steering role in innovation? I think, yes, they, they should be involved in innovation. I fundamentally believe that. But I think some of the, some of the organizations you know, we work with, I think, still have some more sort of baseline or fundamental issues at play. And what I mean by that is the reporting structure for a CISO is still not always clear and not always appropriate, right? And a lot of organizations, CISOs, don't report directly into the CEO or don't even have regular board access. They may be accountable to the board of directors for something, you know, once a quarter, once a year, et cetera, but they don't always have the visibility and the uh, and the ability to get access to senior leaders, you know, for uh, when, you know, a crisis demands it or just when, you know, regular business demands it. And so I think we are still witnessing in many ways an evolution of the CISO role in the same way we sort of witnessed with CIOs in the 1990s. Um, it took a few years for, for businesses to figure out how senior should the CISO be, where should the CISO report into, and even after that, where should the CISO have access to, again, for a sort of break glass emergency scenario. The second comment I would make, Susanna, is that fundamentally CISOs, as I think people have witnessed in, in many organizations, don't they, they don't stick around for that long, sometimes by choice, sometimes not by choice. And so there's a lot of pressures on CISOs from day one or even day zero to perform and to show impact. And it is awfully hard in large, complicated organizations to do that, especially if your reporting structure doesn't always sort of align and isn't always optimized with the, what you're ultimately trying to achieve. And I think for those those couple of reasons, I think 
Yes, the CISO should be involved in innovation. Yes, the CISO has has very intelligent uh, things to say about innovation and has a tremendous amount to add about innovation. But at, in many organizations that, that we spend time with, the issues are, are, are so much more fundamental and basic that that conversation about innovation is still kind of a future conversation. So, Chris, do you think establishing good partnerships and collaborations will help CISOs use the best strategies and maybe feel less isolated? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I also think, and I'm going to, as a practitioner, I, you know, I have to say it's really interesting when you study kind of the perception gap between CISOs and the business. You know, one of the things that we looked at and we asked um, CISOs in our latest survey is how do you perceive your relationship with the board? Meaning, do you think that the board understands you, understands the value of what you do? And 46% of CISOs would say yes, that the board is fully on, that the board is fully on board. They're, they're, they're good with, you know, all of the strategy and the sort of the ex- execution activities. Then when you ask the board the same question, you know, what do you think about the security organization? Only 9% of board members of those same organizations are confident in the uh, ability for the C- CISO and their teams to actually protect the organization. So there's a big gap there. And I think that, you know, when you dissect it a little bit, what you find is that one of the biggest problems is in the method of communication. Boards would say that the CISOs and the security teams don't necessarily speak in the terms of the business. And the CISOs would admit themselves that they're not particularly good at it. And in fact, only about 20% of them have the ability to quantify risk within financial terms. So I think that there is definitely an opportunity for there to be a bridge. But I think that there has to be a two-way recognition of the need for, you know, sort of the CISO to improve their ability to speak within business terms. And I think that, you know, the supervisory and management boards really need to think about, you know, at what point are they bringing in the security teams to have conversations and make more of an effort to actually pull them in, as opposed to assuming that the CISO is just going to be able to do their job without a little bit of help. Mm, and, And do you also think, let me bring in Joram, do you also think, Joram, that Part of the issue is the perception, some would say myth, that a greater focus on security might stifle creativity and productivity within the business. Yeah, I think that's a perception that does persist in some quarters, but I think it is a dying perception. I think enough businesses have seen the cost of not weaving security and privacy and, and other relevant you know, risk, in some cases, into new products and into new innovation you know, from the ground up. And so I think uh, while a lot of people like to, you know, move fast and and feel that, you know, weaving a, a CISO and his or her organization into the conversation could slow them down, I think more and more people are 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 realizing, quite frankly, that it may feel like it's going quickly and it's going rapidly at first, but ultimately it's going to encounter some, you know, fairly fairly significant speed bumps that ultimately will will take longer. And I also want to pick up on what you talked about a little earlier in terms of attracting the right talent. But the other issue we need to mention is that the industry is also experiencing a skills gap. I mean, there's labor shortages across many industries. So how can firms navigate this, Yoram? It's a great question. It is a topic that is on everyone's mind. Most survey data you will uh, reference would actually argue that the, the dearth of talent has only gotten worse 
uh, since the, the since the COVID pandemic started. Depending on again which survey you look at, the the worldwide gap in cybersecurity skills could easily be three or even four million professionals. Um, again, depending on which survey you reference, and I think the challenge is that you know businesses are increasingly realizing that the shortage is probably something they are going to be contending with for the long run and that you know the attacks are only getting more sophisticated so that it's a double edged sword if you will of having to retain ta- the, the existing talent train them make sure they're up to speed on the latest and greatest technologies processes uh threat vectors etc while also looking you know to not overwhelm the teams um you know fundamentally uh it, i think it, i think it's going to be a team effort i think it's going to be public sector private sector working together and I'd also argue it's about identifying, you know, new sources of talent. I think um, organizations have not historically thought about their talent pipeline um, holistically. They've not thought about diversity of thought, diversity of perspective, diversity of experience. And I think there is a real opportunity here to bring, uh, again, globally in the cybersecurity, you know, professional industry to bring in new voices and new perspectives uh, to, to help with these these very significant challenges. How do you think new perspectives can be brought in, Chris? I want to echo everything that Yoram just said. You know, I think he's dead on right, uh, you know, on the subject. I would add, and, you know, on these perspectives, you know, one of the answers to this problem is partnership. Now, you may be listening and thinking, you know, gee, of course, you come from a, you know, a security uh, community that, you know, provides security services. But I do think, you know, having spent most of my time as a CISO, that good partners can provide, um, you know, the expertise and experiences that you're not going to be able to staff on your own. But moreover, there's a second aspect to that, which is, you know, as you're thinking about your supply chain partners, you know, one of the biggest risks that we all face is the, you know, recognition that our supply chain partners may fail in their duty to implement appropriate controls. And we just leave it to the procurement organization and the terms and conditions in a contract, um, assuming that, um, you know, security is being built into the contract, we have nothing to worry about. And that's just not correct. So I think the other aspect of this is, you know, by us increasing the scrutiny in and around our supply chain partners and demanding that those supply chain partners provide, do a better job when they provide us digitized products and services. Um, what that does is it frankly decreases the amount of work we have to do as practitioners to, um, you know, sort of clean up the mess. And so I, you know, I know that seems like a, maybe a, a little bit of a circuitous answer, but I'd say in addition to what Yoram says, those perceptions of, uh, you know, partners both from, you know, bringing in the skills as well as making sure that they don't introduce risk um, is really important. Also, as well, as we've talked about, cost-cutting, squeeze budgets can really hinder progress. Chris, what examples can you share where companies have successfully taken a bit more of a strategic approach to cybersecurity funding? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I think going back to, you know, Yoram was talking a little bit about, you know, sort of the reporting of the CISO. You know, one of the other things that we see in addition to kind of um, the CISO being kind of buried within the IT organization is the fact that the budget is fixed and it becomes a part of the IT budget. Um, and it actually is a very small part of the IT budget. You know, what we're seeing is that if the IT budget, you know, we, the outside organizations would, you know, benchmark it at about two to 5% of revenue. The 
security budget for any given corporation is 0.05% of revenue. Okay, so think about that. Two to five percent is IT, 0.05% is security. That's a fraction of, you know, perhaps what it should be. Um, and as I mentioned, it is fixed and it is buried. And so one of the things that we're seeing leading organizations do is better align the, uh, the budget for security to be more dynamic and benchmarked to how the business is spending vis-a-vis digital transformation programs. So instead of thinking about it as a fixed pool, and you know, there is going to be some operational spend that isn't going to change. There is a percentage of the budget that is allocated toward enabling digital transformation. And I think just having the, um, that kind of funding mechanism in place, it also puts the businesses on notice that, you know, security is important and needs to be built in. Jerome, do you think flexibility in funding is absolutely key? I do, I do. And the other the other irony of the global pandemic, I would add to all of this, is that, you know, businesses have really truly internalized the fact that there is phenomenal talent everywhere. And by saying everywhere, you know, it means, you know, much of that talent may not lie within 25 or 50 miles of some corporate you know, headquarters. But the reality is that for an industry that is facing such tremendous challenges, uh, you know, in a shortage of talent, like, I think it behooves all of us to think very creatively and very broadly. And that includes not only thinking about new sources of talent by going into, you know, new constituencies, new populations, et cetera, different types of, you know, schools, universities, et cetera, but also to think about does every job need to be in a geographically specific location or not? And I think businesses that are increasingly asking themselves that are discovering that they now can hire in ways that, again, maybe as recently as two years ago would have been inconceivable. Yeah, it's really interesting how the world has changed and just what effect the pandemic has had in so many ways. Now, we're coming to the end of this podcast, and I just want to ask you to look into your crystal balls and tell me just how confident are you that when we look back in five years' time, that companies will have surmounted all the cyber issues they're currently facing, Chris? You know, I think we're at a perfect storm. And, you know, I know that some of what I've said, you know, the dwindling budgets and hard to find talent and, you know, failure to include security inside, you know, coupled with, you know, lots of uh, regulatory complexity that just seems kind of like, you know, the sky is falling. You know, one thing I can say about the security industry is we're really good in a crisis that when it's crunch time, that's when we shine. And so, you know, what my hope is, um, as I, you know, hear from executives, business leaders and, you know, supervisory boards, as they increase their interest um, in the subject and I'm seeing the influence of the CISO increase, I, I think and I am hopeful that that kind of nexus is going to allow us as security practitioners to finally address that fundamentally broken approach that we've taken. Um, and instead of us, you know, looking at it as a compliance or a crisis function, um, you know, something that is, you know, to be ignored at every possible cost, you know, finally, we're going to be able to kind of take the reins and really treat this as a, the business risk that it is and, you know, sort of get the, the headspace, if you will, with the executive community and, you know, be able to make that positive change. An optimistic outlook. Yoram, are you as positive? I am. I am fundamentally optimistic. I mean, you know, if we look back 10 or 12 years, 
there weren't that many CISOs, right? Many organizations did not have a chief executive with responsibility uh, for security and only security, right? They might have had someone in the IT department who did three other jobs and security was just a fourth leg to that stool, if you will, or, or, or leg to that table. And that's not the reality anymore. And then as recently as maybe seven or eight years ago, even if you said the word CISO to someone, they would say, what's that? Right? And you would have to define the term. That, that simply isn't the case anymore. CISOs are a well-understood role. They're, it's, a, it's a normative role in most large and mid-sized organizations. The organizations that don't have CISOs or, or full-time CISOs understand it and are trying to manage around it. So fundamentally, we're at a much better place than we were as recently, again, as 10 or 12 years ago. The second reason I'm optimistic is that these are, these are basically solvable problems in many, many cases. A lot of the challenges that we see are driven by a lack of some pretty basic cyber hygiene, issues around identity and access management, issues around endpoint protection, et cetera. And what we're seeing, I think, more and more is people are realizing that getting the basics right and getting one's cyber hygiene, again, at an organizational level, improved is um, yes, it requires diligence and focus, and it may require you know board visibility. And obviously, Chris made some very important comments a few minutes ago about budget. But the reality is that there is a path, there is a roadmap to doing that in most cases. And then the final comment I would make is board visibility. Cybersecurity issues were not discussed for the most part at the board level, again, as recently as 10 or 12 years ago, and that is just not the case anymore. And so if you look at the trajectory of these three topics, the reality is these issues are becoming more widely understood, more widely recognized as real fundamental risk issues to an organization, and they're becoming more widely professionalized, if I could make up that word for a moment, um, and budgeted. Okay. Well, thank you so much for all of your insights we are coming to the end of the podcast now, and I just want to thank you, Yoram and Chris, for joining me to talk about all the cybersecurity challenges we're facing, so many valuable insights that you provided. Thank you, Susanna. This was lovely. Thanks so much, Susanna, for having us. You've been listening to the EY and Microsoft Tech Directions podcast, Cybersecurity in the Post-Pandemic World. For more information, you can visit ey.com slash Microsoft. And a quick note from the attorneys, the views of third parties set out in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the global EY organization nor its member firms. Moreover, they should be seen in the context of the time in which they were made. I'm Susanna Streeter. Thanks very much for joining us. EY and Microsoft, your digital world realized. <laughs>